0: Yes, most definitely. But you have to be to the point where you have that insight to be able to do it. And that's why I say the guardianships for persons who are mentally ill are the hardest. And there are, you know, the ones that are really wild are people who have a mental illness, may not have been treated because the spouse was Taking care of things, so to speak. The spouse is gone, and now we have some dementia on top of it. So, those get really hairy because I used to get into an argument with a friend of mine, and he was a director of a um, psychiatric hospital. And he said, We don't treat old people with dementia. (laughs) I said, Well, but there's a mental illness too. Well, they need to just go somewhere. They need to go to a nursing home.
1: This is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. I'm Jason Blair. That's Elizabeth McMaster, an attorney and an advocate who focuses on areas of law, that intersect with elder law, guardianship, and mental health. Elizabeth not only practices law in this area, but she has a true passion for helping people whose psychological, social, and financial well-being are negatively impacted and the legal tools that exist and can be brought to bear to improve the welfare of others. Elizabeth is the managing partner of a law firm based in Fredericksburg, Virginia, that carries her name She has more than 16 years of experience serving the Northern, Eastern, and Hampton Roads areas of Virginia. Elizabeth says her passion for this law is rooted in growing up as the daughter of a registered nurse. Her mom, in her later part of her career, was focused on working with older patients. Elizabeth remembers visiting her mom at nursing homes and her mother asking her to sit with residents who did not get many visitors. This ignited a passion for the elderly and the disabled, who are often, Elizabeth says, trampled on by others in society, and at times by their own poor choices. This area of law has long been controversial because it touches on the inherent conflict between helping people and individual rights. Tools like conservatorship strip individuals of the right to make certain decisions. That debate was hypercharged in 2019 by pop star Britney Spears' battle with her father over a years-long conservatorship that she had been placed into involuntarily. Spears had been placed into it because of her struggles with bipolar disorder and several high-profile, highly publicized incidents that she had. There was an enormous backlash to the management of the conservatorship and broad calls, particularly among young people, to quote-unquote, free Brittany. The goal of these protesters was to change laws around conservatorship. This debate often overlooked the mentally ill elderly adults struggling with cognitive decline and others who could be put in financial or physical harm's way without an appointment of a guardian or some form of protector. The debate raged in the headlines again in 2023, when a Tennessee judge ended the voluntary conservatorship between Sean and Anne Toohy and football player Michael Orr, all three of whom were the subjects of the upbeat 2009 film The Blind Side that Sandra Bullock starred in. These issues show up in many other areas of law beyond conservatorships, such as mental health law, where advocates heatedly debate How easy it should be to detain people and obtain an order to involuntarily commit them to inpatient care. Elizabeth is a member of the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys and a member of the Board of Directors for the Virginia Academy of Elder Law Attorneys. Elizabeth graduated from Mary Baldwin University with a degree in history and the Catholic University of America, where she received her Juris Doctorate. Today, we're going to discuss the role that conservatorship and other similar tools play in society, that tension between individual rights and protecting individuals, and what we can learn to make society a better place for those who are elderly and disabled. Elizabeth, I just want to thank you for joining. And I just wanted to mention, like, you're the first guest that we've had who is a part of the Silver Linings Fires Chat, which is our uh, Facebook group. So you're actually the first person who's been a part of that group before they were a guest and actually came onto the show. So I really appreciate you coming on. I've really enjoyed talking to you. I feel like you and I really developed a, a bond really quickly, not just because of our love for true crime, but I think um, about our deep affection for people and people's well-being. I really just sort of clicked with you in that way. And then in some of our conversations about the work you did, it's just uh, as somebody coming from a mental health background and working with people with disabilities, and then, you know, with even things like my parents and aunts and uncles getting older and dealing with things, I just thought that this is like a powerful topic that people don't really understand very well. So thank you very much for coming on.
0: Oh, absolutely. I'm happy to be here.
1: Oh, good. I am... Um, I uh, We also have a shared love of true crime, right? <laughs> yes, an- we do. <laughs> that's another... Bonding point. Yet another person that I've met through Brett Talley and <laughs> Alice LeCour. So I do um, I do think that uh, it's funny in life. Like, you know, they say, you know, friends who meet online. A lot of people will talk about how, like, it's not an in-real-life relationship or it's a parasocial relationship. But I feel like we're kind of, like, a part of a unique group of people who truly become friends. So I'm putting you in the friend column. I don't know whether you're putting me in the friend column, but I <laughs> am putting uh, you in
0: ab- Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. <laughs> I probably speak, you know, it could be over social media to my cod. Podcast friends more than my actual friends. It's just one of those, and we talk about the dumbest things. So you never know what you're going to get. And for me, it's it's funny because you know I'm an attorney, and I I don't come home and watch Law and Order, or I don't, you know, and and I don't know how I started listening to the pro- um, the Prosecutor's podcast, but I did. And I loved it. And I'm like, oh, but I don't want to, you know, this is different because it's true crime. It's not what I do every day um, Uh. because you just kind of get, you know, it's your job kind of thing, you know, Um, so you know what I'm saying, but yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, with true crime, I'm not a criminal attorney. Uh, I know hardly anything about criminal law um, other than what I've learned um, through the podcast. So but I found just so many people are so passionate, be it that they're attorneys or not, um, and want to know the process, and you know how civil rights come come into it, um, juries, and the you know the whole thing. So it's really fascinating to me.
1: Well, and I actually think like uh, two thoughts come to mind based on what you're saying. There's one, I think, in the prosecutor's podcast, like we have good role models for how to build a community instead of, you know, just having a bunch of uh, listeners. But the other thing about law that's really interesting being a part of that true crime space is how many people, when they're talking about sort of like they come across a lawyer and they think sort of like, Lawyers know everything about every piece of law and law is the same in all sorts of different situations, civil, criminal, and other things like that. But the reality is like law is almost like medicine, a highly specialized field. Like you don't want your psychiatrist doing your burn surgery. (laughs) You don't want your orthopedist uh, doing the work of your OBGYN. And um, so it's really interesting to me too when somebody like you as a lawyer is a part of that community and people find out that you guys are lawyers and they're asking you questions about like... (laughs) Criminal aspects, and you're like, I don't know.
0: Yeah, that's a, basically that's what I'll say. Somebody asked me something about criminal law or bankruptcy, or I, I don't know.
1: Oh, yeah, no so, one knows anything about bankruptcy. Yeah. <laughs>
0: and, and even gets weirder when you get into the administrative um, code, like because I went to school in DC and you had, you know, how the Social Security Administration runs their court system and all these different
1: immigration court. Yes.
0: And that's a whole other, you know, system. So it's very, um, it has to be specialized and is, and I always tell people too, it is like practicing medicine. Um, you, you know, back in the day you had your general practitioner of medicine. You had your general practitioner, um, attorney in town, your Atticus Finch, uh, so to, so to speak. But, These days, you just can't do that because there's so much specialization in the law.
1: One of the things that I really – I always wonder and I ask when I have lawyers on, like, how they originally got interested. I mean, my brother's a lawyer. Other people are – he had a weird path. He was interested in technology. Then he got interested in, like, how do people do deals around this and became – people like, are, but I I read on your website. I was looking at your website, and I read that a big inspiration. And I thought this was really different for an attorney's um, website that you actually talked about what your inspiration was, but that your mother had worked as a nurse. Is that right? Yeah,
0: she in was that- a registered nurse, and okay. yes, in her later career, she worked. In geriatrics, Um, her love and her passion with being an RN, however, was in the emergency room. But once you hit a certain age, doing that type of nursing is for younger, it's it's basically for younger people. So she ended up going and working in nursing homes. And so that's how I came to uh, understand and have empathy for the, the elderly and um, also my mom was 38 years old when she had me her mother was 38 years old when she had her so out of the gate I had a set of grandparents that were in their late 70s when I was oh, wow. born wow. so I was always you know taught um, around you know they were born and my, my mother's side my grandparents were born in the 1800s So, yeah, Um, so it was just always being around older people and learning the value that they give and they have and the life they've lived and what they can teach. Um, And I was a history major. And so I think that part of that, too, and some of the things that I've frankly just loved is meeting folks who um, say husband and wife And I will ask them how they met. And the stories are just fabulous. Mm -hmm. I had a couple one time who met in foreign language school over in, I want to say Iran, back in the day. Mm -hmm. Um, That will tell you how long ago that was. (laughs) One worked for the State Department, one worked for I forget who.
1: Had to be like in the 50s, right?
0: Yeah, it was like in the 40s or 50s, and that's how they met. And, you know, it was just fascinating in hearing, you know, all the places they lived and especially practicing up in the Fredericksburg area. There's a lot of, you know, retired military and there's also retired uh, government um, workers, too. So, yeah, uh, so a lot of fascinating. And, um, you know, we always joke too how many spies have we had in our office? Because right. just <laughs> they're not going to tell you, but um you know that that kind of thing as well. I work
1: for the State Department. I work for the Department of Agriculture. I work for yeah, sure, <laughs> yeah. sure you do. <laughs> I
0: knew, um, yeah, I knew that there was at least one because his stepson told me that he was pretty sure that his stepfather was um, doing something in Ar- with the Iran Contra thing back in the day.
1: Ah, yeah, the DC area can be weird like that at times. <laughs> I um, you know, my mom passed away about a week and. At- half ago and she was 80. And um, one of the blessings, speaking of love stories, my, my parents' story is great too. They were both supposed to go to college at two universities and at the last minute couldn't go to those colleges. And my mom was supposed to go to the University of Maryland. My dad was supposed to go to George Washington University. So they they ended up at the opposite college, but they both ended up at the college that the other person was supposed to go to. And they were they were living in this apartment building in Columbia, Maryland, and I think one of their friends was trying to set them up. They went out, they hung out, they started dating. But then my dad, who was working with the Defense Department, had to go off to like I think it was Thailand as a as a part of some work related to the to the Vietnam War work. And he was there a couple of days, and he's like, "I miss that woman so much." When I get back, I'm gonna marry her. And literally, coming off the plane, he decided to to marry her. But I was thinking about like one of the blessings of my mom's passing. Like she um, lived a really wonderful life and had a peaceful death. But she never lost her faculties, and that was always like the worry that we had. And so I think about the kind of work that you're doing. And a couple of people pointed it out to me. They said the same thing, like at least, you know, up until her last days, she was there. But I think about the kind of law that you're doing. It's during, at least the elder part of it, is during a part of people's lives, like for the loved ones or the person, that in many ways the person they love has been passing away for a long period of time and a lot of it's about protecting that person as they go through a very long transition, I sort of feel. Is that is that an accurate read?
0: It yes, it is. And it is probably the you know, they always say it's it's the work you know, worse for the family than it is for the person because they don't know it. They they might understand it first when let's say if there's a Alzheimer's diagnosis they may understand at first um, what's going on and that they are um, not remembering things that they um, can't do what they used to be able to do, such as driving. That's a big one. And, you know, and there can also be some changes in mood um, changes in behavior, that sort of thing as well. Um, but it is hard on the family and people that love the individual because it's a slow death of, you know, and sometimes they're physically healthy and it's just the mind that is gone and they don't, they'll say, this isn't, this isn't my mom or this isn't my dad anymore. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's really difficult for the family members and, um, I understand. I have Alzheimer's disease on both sides of my family, so I've seen it. Uh, I lost my uncle when he was only 65 years old.
1: Oh, wow. To Alzheimer's? He,
0: to Alzheimer's. He had early, they call early onset, so he was diagnosed at 60 and was gone by the time he reached 65 because for some reason, early onset happens. Um, it's quicker for some reason.
1: So, How old were you at that time?
0: Oh, I would have been a teenager. So I was probably like 15 around then. And, you know, his father, my grandfather, died from Alzheimer's, but it wasn't Alzheimer's. It was just senility back then. Mm. had all the behaviors. Um, I remember my mom telling me that they were going to go somewhere, and he had the car keys in his hand. And they get in the car. He's in the driver's seat. And he has the car keys and he looks at my mom and says, what do I do with this?
1: Oh, wow.
0: And so she said, dad, just give me the keys and I'll, I'll drive because, um, and I never really knew him because, you know, I was talking about behaviors. He would sit in his favorite chair and he would smoke his, um, he had a pipe and he would blow smoke in my face. And I thought he was the meanest man I was only like, I think I was five when he passed away Mm. and I would get so upset because the neighbors next door, um, they had a bunch of kids and the kids all loved him, but they knew him when he was him. And I thought, you know, well, he's mean to, why is he mean? I didn't understand. I was only five. Why is he so mean to me? And he was so nice to these kids. Mm. Um, so that was kind of my first introduction to Alzheimer's and, um, then my uncle was next, his son. And then I had it on my father's side with my father's mother. Mm. Um, and she had, and we didn't know she had it for a long time because uh, she was hard of hearing. And she didn't like to wear her hearing aids.
1: Ah, so people thought she just couldn't <laughs> yeah. hear. Yeah, so you
0: yeah. would go and you talk to her and she'd sit there and smile. And not knowing, she had Absolutely no idea what was going on or maybe who you even were until her behaviors with my, my grandfather started getting concerned and, you know, putting, you know, um, cold pans on the stove and turning the, the burners on, nothing in them, trying to get a bingo at 11 o'clock at night with her, you know, oh, trying wow. to get out the door, you know, and uh, she ended up like, I think, pummeling him with her purse one night um, because she wanted to get a bingo so, oh, yeah, so he he basically said that it's time to do something at that point because he couldn't couldn't handle it anymore, so it's you know, and it is hard, especially when um it's new to a family, so some families they know it's you know great grandma had this, or you know Grandpa had this, but if it's the first time in the family, they're really at a loss for what to do and yeah. Uh, And that's when, you know, all I can do is say, well, you need to get into a support group. You need to learn about this disease and you need to, um, you know, come up with a plan, so to speak. Um, One of my craziest cases I had, I think um, I told you about was my granny napping case. And we had a concern with her because she was originally from Germany. And sometimes people will revert back to their native language if they have Alzheimer's and nobody knew German. Ah. <laughs> and so oh, wow. we were, you know, so the family was worried about, okay, what does she start speaking in German? And we don't know what she's saying. And um, that was one of the, you know, you know, looking back in time. Now that was the least of the concerns, but, um, but that was one of them. So it was, it was a whole learning process for them as well.
1: One of the things that you would mention to me is that when you were when you were younger, you would go with your mom to um visit her patients and she would have you sit with the people who didn't get visitors. What was that like as a teenager? Was it strange or no, fun? It was, or?
0: it was fun actually. Um I would go after school. And she would send me to different rooms. And uh, I grew up in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, so
1: the most haunted town in the United States, I'm told.
0: Uh, apparently, but I've never never saw a ghost there. <laughs> I know of right. Right. Um, <laughs> plenty of are you actors. sure? Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but so one of the most interesting ladies I met is um, was this lady, and uh, she was the widow of one of um, President Eisenhower's, um, I think he worked for Eisenhower in the White House, and he also was with him during um, World War II. And so when the Eisenhowers retired to Gettysburg, they followed. And so Uh she was the only one remaining out of the four, but they spent a lot of time together. So my mom, everybody at the nursing home, Wanted to hear stories about Ike and Mamie, but this lady wasn't talking. <laughs> so, my mom, she said, Why don't you go see Ms. Nevins and see if she'll talk to you?
1: <laughs>
0: and uh, so I went, and um, she actually ended up telling me a few stories about um, their time with the Eisenhowers. And she gave me one of her pictures of Mamie that she had. Oh, so, wow. But she told me this one story I remember where. I guess they were sitting outside having a cocktail, and the Eisenhowers owned this farm. It's now you can go tour it. And so they were um, there having a cocktail, and they heard this rustling in the trees. And they look up, and they're photographers, so paparazzi back then, I guess, trying to take pictures of them where they're just sitting out trying to have a drink. So, uh, <laughs> You know, happened even back in the day. So, um, and another, another one I remember is I took German in um, high school Mm -hmm. and my mom said, there's a lady here from, uh, originally from Germany. She's just here for rehab, but she's, you know, she doesn't have anybody to talk to. Why don't you go and see? she'll help you with your German? So I would go and talk to her and she'd help me with my German homework and she'd help me with conversational German. So that was, um. You know, not only was it good for them, it was educational for me. It's kind
1: of like a metaphor for the wisdom that a lot of older people have for us. Like, one of the things after my mom passed, I kept thinking about is, like, it was flashing in my head all the great stories and lessons and family things. Not to say that there aren't some that I want to go back and ask her more questions about, but there, it's just you know, more time on this earth brings an enormous amount of value. But what what sparked you? How did you even find out about this kind of law? And what sparked you to become a lawyer as opposed to a nurse or something else like that?
0: Well, so the so elder law came about basically in the early nineties, I believe it became a thing, um, so to speak, and. That came about with the uh, this group called NAILA, the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys. So the small group of attorneys decided, okay, we don't just do estate planning. We don't just do powers of attorney, medical directives. We have to kind of look at the whole picture. And so what are we, we going to call that? And it turned into elder law. Well, it just so happened I started working for an attorney in Roanoke, Virginia, as a legal assistant. And at the time, he was doing real estate closings, collections, back
1: How did you end up from Gettysburg and Roanoke, which is like Southwest okay. Virginia coal country?
0: Um. So I went to Roanoke College in Salem, Virginia. Ah. So, okay. and believe it or not, Roanoke College and Gettysburg College are sister schools. Oh,
1: I had no idea. I had yes. no idea.
0: So okay. they were both, um, I didn't either, I got there and... They said, oh, where are you from? They said, oh, that's our sister school. And I said, well, I had no idea. So um, <laughs> that's...
1: I have to uh, tell you, I didn't know that sister schools existed until this moment.
0: <laughs> yeah. Apparently, um, they were both... Oh, now I can't remember, but the, a certain Methodist or certain religion. Hmm. Um, but they were considered to be sister schools. So so I thought, you know, that's, that's how I ended up in Roanoke. So I just kind of stayed. And I went... Um, I actually did early decision there. I went toured, and the people were so nice and friendly and I just couldn't believe it. <laughs>
1: and and the, It's a great yeah. part of the country. Yeah. yeah.
0: And I just fell in love with, you know, that, you know, just the school and it was the right size for me. And um, so, so I ended up working for this attorney and he decided he was, I think he just got tired of doing real estate and, they were, at the time, they were coming up with Crespa and all this, this other stuff where he didn't want to have to deal with it. What's so, Crespa?
1: That's like a real estate law? It's or? a
0: real estate thing. Um, there's certain rules you had to follow. and uh, mm-hmm. So he decided that he didn't want to. He wanted to kind of temper the real estate stuff. And he got into elder law. And so thought, well, that's, you know, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I heard of it. Um, Otherwise, I don't think I ever would have known what it was. He was one of the first members of the Virginia Academy of Elder Law Attorneys. So that's kind of a subsidiary of the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys. So when I went to law school, I was going to do securities. (laughs) And I went and had an internship at at the NASD at the time, if you remember that.
1: Yeah, 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 the,
0: yeah, uh, uh, so,
1: yeah, the National Securities Association. Security. It's the Association for the Securities folks. Yeah. yeah.
0: So and that was somewhere in Maryland. And, oh, it was the most boring thing I ever did in my life, and. Um, there's a form letter for everything. There was like no thinking involved, <laughs> Couldn't create anything. Like, oh, no, there's a letter for that.
1: So <laughs> just thought, fill in the template, right? Cause yes. it's so highly regulated.
0: Right. And I thought, no, I don't want to do this. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I'm like, well, we're not going to do that. But basically in law school, I was told first year by my property, um, professor, I said, um, how do I pass Virginia State bar because it is a hard bar to pass? And he said what you do is you take every class for every subject they may test on, which are mm. like 23. Wow. And that's what I did. So, I didn't really take electives that I wanted to take just mm. because I wanted to make sure I didn't have to sit for the bar more than one time. (laughs) So, so
1: so really like having that lawyer, then having your mother, like your passions kind of collided or your interests kind of collided in that moment.
0: Yeah. I, yeah, just kind of, he kind of, you know, I call him my work dad. So he just kind of became, you know, my mentor. He still is, he's still practicing to this day. And he just, Uh, A couple months ago, we were both um, on the board of directors for the Virginia Academy of Elder Law Attorneys. And um, he just cycled off recently. But he was always, you know, you can do it, you know, um, because I dragged my feet about going to law school. I didn't go until I was 30 years old. Mm -hmm. And he was my biggest advocate. He just said, oh, you can do it. You'll be fine. And um, he's like, I'll always be here if you need anything. And so he's the one he and my brother-in-law at the time were the ones who bullied me into opening my own, uh, practice. practice. Right? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. are you crazy? And all my law school friends were like, are you nuts? And I'm like, I, I think I am. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I can definitely relate to the nuts part. The um, <laughs> Definitely the solo entrepreneur is a, is a tough one and tough one to build around. But one of the things that I was thinking about, thinking about that, that element of like people going through dementia and sort of losing yourself, it's very similar to, I guess, an experience that I've been through as somebody with a mental health condition. I have bipolar disorder and, you know, in bipolar disorder, like, you know, there's mania where you get really high and elevated. You might think you're God or, like be filled with energy. And then there's, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of people don't know that bipolar depression is slightly different than regular depression. It can get a lot deeper and darker for longer periods of time. But in those moments, like one of the interesting things about bipolar is it it like really affects the hippocampus, the ability to transfer your short-term memory into your long-term memory. So in addition to like The risk of psychosis and the deep depressions or the risk of psychosis and mania, that can come up, but there's lots of memory loss. And I think about, you know, I was never involuntarily hospitalized. I was on the cusp of it twice, but I was like, you know, one was after the scandal at the Times. And at that point, I went from like, Jason, I know it all to you guys could ask me to do anything right now you could ask me to stand upside down and clamp you know you know uh, symbols like a monkey with my feet and I'll do it. So it was a humbling experience but and then there was another time where I was almost involuntarily um, hospitalized and it makes me think of the difficulty that exists in this world and I've been a part of other people's voluntary hospitalizations. There was this one psychiatrist that I work with who said to me, you know, there was a friend of mine who is his patient and she needed to be involuntarily hospitalized. She was like jumping over fences in the neighborhood to get away from the people who were trying to hospitalize her. And he said, like the point he made, which was a really good one. He's like, you try to do what you can for your friend and you try to help them. And you try and sort of like bring their wishes true. But when it's like life or death, as some of these mental health crises are, are you willing to give up your friendship to help the person? And I've noticed that with my own clients, that there have been times where people have been such a danger to themselves or others and unwilling to seek treatment that we've had to push for involuntary hospitalization. And it may break the relationship. It may break us apart. And it's really emotional on both sides of it as somebody who's been hospitalized myself and faced the prospect of that and who's had to do it. I gained an appreciation when it was happening to me for the fact that to help me And this was in that retrospect, my sense of agency, my control of the world around me or the limited control had to be taken away. And that was really tough. But also like doing it to other people is really hard because in so many situations and relationships, like loving people is about helping them get what they want and giving them what they want. And in those situations, it's about taking away what they want because of what they really need. And so I think about it from the perspective of somebody like you as a lawyer, who's in the middle of these situations, what does it feel like as an attorney? And do you think like just from a philosophical perspective, because a lot of people get up in arms about that idea of taking away people's agency and voluntary medication hospitalization you know not allowing them to make certain decisions what's it like to be in the middle of that what are your thoughts about like a society where where we didn't do that well
0: well it's the hardest ones are when i have usually it's the parents of uh intellectually disabled young adults because they feel like they're doing something bad to their children. And the way I explain it to them is that there are predators out there who will exploit, will take advantage of their adult child if there are not protections in place. And that kind of leads into where would society be without a guardianship protection? Because especially with this population, They don't have the chance to even do a medical directive or a power of attorney because they lack the capacity, the intellectual capacity, legal capacity to do so. So the guardianship is there for that protection for them. And, you know, I had, you know, an eye opening experience. I had clients one time who told me about they did a special Olympics with their child and they said that they had seen in special Olympics, the higher functioning young adults take advantage of the lower functioning. Oh, wow. Even in that setting,
1: even in a setting where there's sensitivity to the issue.
0: Yes. Where in it's, you know, I guess it's just human nature that, that that does happen. And I was guardian at one time for a young man. Um, higher functioning autistic young man. And he was in a group home out in Southwestern Virginia. I think it was Galax, I want to say somewhere out that way in the mountains
1: yeah. in the
0: mountains. Yes. And I went to visit, visit him. He was transferred from here and ended up transferring the guardianship to someone closer, but I was talking to, the residential manager. And she had told me that I think there were about five or six of them living there at the time. And she would take them all to, I think Walmart, she said like once a week. And she caught him, this one girl in the house who was on a lower level. Um, she liked him. She thought it was cute. And um, she wanted him to be her boyfriend so he convinced her to get give her to give him money. And so what oh, she, wow. what she would do is they'd be in Walmart and she would drop a $20 bill behind her. And he would be there and he'd pick it up. And so the residential manager saw this happening. And so she thought, well, this has got to stop. And so what she did is she saw the next week, I guess, she saw her do that. And so she got in between the two of them. And she's like, oh, somebody lost a $20 bill. Let's go turn it in at the desk. And so that kind of stopped that from happening. But, I mean, that's just an example where he was doing, you know, he was trying to take advantage of her because she thought, you know, he was cute.
1: So, What is the role of a guardian? What What do guardians do?
0: So, if you think about it, um, you, you know what a power of attorney is, and probably a healthcare directive. You know, what yeah. Those are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, if there is no healthcare directive in place, that's where the guardian role would fill in. Um, so, basically, the guardian makes decisions about where somebody lives, who their doctor is, and medications. So, there's no, you know, HIPAA issues, and they make sure that the person is cared for. Whereas when you talk about a conservator, that's when you talk about money. Mm. Um, that's where the money part comes into.
1: So, so it's like being a guardian when you're a conservator, except for the financial piece of it. Is it true that like a guardian's responsibility is like to protect the interests of the person?
0: Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. So it's the the guardian is responsible for the person. Now, and I always tell my clients this, they say, well, what's our our liability? And so there isn't a legal liability, except, for example, you're, let's say you're the guardian of your cousin. And your cousin is...
1: By um, the way, with some of my cousins, I could see that happening.
0: Okay, well, there you go.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They'd all admit it.
0: (laughs) So there would be a Let's say you didn't like your neighbor and you bring your cousin over. Your cousin is limited and you put a gun in your cousin's hand and say, shoot, shoot the neighbor and your cousin does it because they don't know any better. Then you would be liable. But if the same cousin goes out and injures somebody on their own, that you're not liable
1: for. So it's so, a bit like being a parent. Like we're it's seeing like being more a parent. exactly. Yeah, yes. More of these cases where, like, a parent gives access to a gun and somebody mm-hmm. shoots something. That's where they could be liable. But for the vast majority, as long as they're not doing something reckless,
0: exactly.
1: Um, or direction. That's a, that's kind of interesting. I I imagine for you know some of the older folks or even some of the younger folks. It must be very difficult when the person has some measure of, let's say, competence remaining for them to, well, for everyone to make the decision. But, you know, I, I, I just imagine that you want to do these things before the person is too far gone. And before they're sort of like too far gone is the point where they are going to want to fight it. I would imagine like nobody wants their agency to disappear. I think.
0: No. And it's, it's a fine line. It's, and it just depends. Sometimes the family doesn't realize how bad it is until, you know, you know, there's a Police reactive come knocking approach. knocking on
1: the door. Or, yes. Yeah.
0: There's a reactive approach and a proactive, believe it or not. Most people are reactive. So They're going to drag their feet because they don't want to, I mean, it's not that they don't care, but it's a lot, you know, a lot of, a lot of it is what do we do? I don't know what to do.
1: Yeah. I have friends, a friend who found out that her mother was um, you know, was unable to take herself because the police in another town, the town that her mom uh, was in contacted her and told her that this man 40-year-old man in New York City had scammed her out of $40,000. And that was the first they, they really seriously knew about it. But one of the interesting things in that conversation is she said, you know, looking back, we kind of knew and we were in denial and we didn't want to deal with it.
0: And that's very common, um, because it is a lot, because when you, um, go through this process, you're basically taking over someone's life and it's not fun. And it's a lot of, it's a lot of work to do. And, you know, you're making decisions for somebody else.
1: Yeah. I, I'm, I'm just wondering for you, like kind of stepping back from the families, what is, what is it like for you just emotionally to work in this kind of space? I imagine they're like good days and they're joyous days when the right thing happens. And then they're probably painful days and they're probably days where the right thing happens, but still everybody's mad at you. Wait, what's it emotionally like?
0: Well, you know, I, I, I've won cases for people, ugly, contested guardianships, conservatorships, and nobody's happy. Mm-hmm. And because it's a process and people don't understand why it takes so long, why it's so expensive, you know. But if you have somebody contest, you know, they're, you know, they have legal rights. And you have to, you know, if the let's say if it's an older individual with dementia, and they, they tell the guardian at Lightham, I want a lawyer. Guess what? They're getting a lawyer. Sometimes they don't even say that, and the judge is going to appoint their own counsel for them. So then you're dealing now with at least three attorneys that have schedules. And, and probably well,
1: different, different opinions than different mm-hmm. clients. And- right,
0: exactly. So it can get very messy. Um, I'm trying to wrap up one right now um, where I need uh, signatures from the counsel from the other attorneys and it's just sometimes it's like hurting cats. So, but, and people are only seeing their own individual situation.
1: Have you ever, have you ever had a time where you lost a case where you knew that by the loss of the case, the person was really in danger?
0: No. 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 no, I generally, I've only ever lost two and one of them is kind of half lost, um, mm. guardianships. The one I knew I was going to lose and my client was an agency and they, and I told them, you're not, we're not going to win this. And they said, that's fine. We just want to cover our, you know, what's mm. all mm. right. And I hate losing. So, but I'm like, I had to just grin and bear it. <laughs> so,
1: right. <laughs> right. 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 Right.
0: At least my client's not mad at me, right? Because they
1: all, right. all right, yeah. At least they know in advance that it's going to happen. How you mentioned the agency part. How do how do cases in general like this bubble up? Like, you know, we've got well-known cases like with guardianship or conservatorship that have like mm-hmm. been in the news, like Michael or Britney Spears. Mm-hmm. Like, how do those kinds of cases bubble up, and how do they compare to like? What's really happening? Because I, I sort of feel like those cases are kind of like unique and extraordinary in some ways, and they're not the average kind of case.
0: Well, yeah. The whole, the Britney Spears one, of course, you know, I have to caveat I'm not licensed in California, nor am I licensed in Tennessee for the uh, blindside case. But uh, with Britney Spears, I think hers was just a straight out conservatorship, as was his. His and um, it seems to be from everything I read about it very secretive. And in Virginia, they're not you know, they're not you know, exposed on the front page, but it does, it is public record if someone is appointed as someone's guardian or conservator. So, the Britney Spears thing, I just um, there's not a lot out there on that, really. However, for Michael, I did find the order. Uh, for him, which was very interesting, because hmm. his biological parents signed off on the Tuie's becoming his conservators, and the order finds that he does not—he did not have any kind of mental or physical disability. So generally, when there's a conservatorship put in place, it's because the person does not have the capacity to sign a power of attorney. Why could he not have signed a power of attorney? Sounds more them?
1: like an adoption,
0: but it wasn't
1: <laughs> so, right. <laughs>
0: and so it's very odd. Um, also, there was, from what I could see, there was no guardian at Lightham appointed. Now, like I said, I, I'm not licensed in Tennessee, but I did read their updated code section, and it said says now, but that was back in 2004. But now, if anyone's going to be appointed a, a fiduciary in Tennessee, a guardian li- at litem shall be appointed. And the guardian at litem, at least in Virginia, is a practicing attorney who actually is certified to serve as guardian at litem.
1: I was and- going to ask, how, why, how and why would you have a conservator managing someone's finances without having a guardian looking out for their best interests seems just risky for
0: me. Well, it doesn't make any, like I said, it doesn't make any sense when you have a finding in the order that he wasn't mentally or physically incapacitated. Because in Virginia, and I think a lot of places, if there's a less restrictive alternative, which would be a power of attorney on the conservator side or a medical directive on the guardian side, then there's no need for the conservatorship. So yeah. it, it's very, I don't know. And it was signed off by a judge. And like I said, from what I could tell, um, there was an aguardian item.
1: Yeah. So one of the interesting things about that case that I had read, I forget who had done this story, it, but it was somebody credible, credible. It was like NBC or maybe it had been the Washington Post or someone along those lines. Was that, you know, Michael Orr was or says he was under the impression that he was being adopted, but in reality, it was just control of his finances. How do you, how in this space, right, in this space, do you all as attorneys, judges, other people, per, per, and I think of the Spears case, and regardless of where anyone lands on, on her dad and whether what he did was responsible or not, you know, she was going through mental health crisis and, you know, there was lots of money at play and life decisions, but how do you protect against people abusing the system? Are there protections? like Ab- when,
0: Absolutely. Kind of and that's why th- these two cases are very strange to me. Also, I don't know if you remember back in 2020 when that movie, I care a lot came out on Netflix.
1: No, no. What's that about?
0: So that is about a woman and it's supposedly based on a true story out of New Mexico or Nevada or somewhere where she becomes the guardian and conservator for a bunch of people. And she's basically fleecing them and taking their money, selling their houses and putting them in nursing homes or assisted living facilities. I think it's loosely based on a true story. I don't know, but um, that movie along with the free Brittany really got state legislatures up in arms um, mm. and in Virginia it, it's a non-issue because we have protections in place. So once um, if somebody wants to file a petition for guardianship and or conservatorship in Virginia, along with the petition, there's uh, an order for a guardian at litem to be appointed. And as I stated earlier, that is an attorney who is licensed in Virginia and is certified. We have to take so many continuing legal education courses um, to keep our certification to be able to do, to serve in that capacity. So the guardian net litem is basically an attorney that is the eyes and ears of the court, and they're considered an officer of the court, and they are supposed to make a written recommendation as to what's in the best interest of the respondent. They meet with the respondent face to face, and so that was interesting during COVID, um, where we had to do video meetings with people because you couldn't get into nursing homes or assisted living facilities or hospitals. Oh
1: yeah, homes. right. So, Some of the but, most dangerous places for the patients and for right. Doctors.
0: Yeah, so the guardian ad litem has to meet with the individual one on one in person. Except during a pandemic, then you have to do what you do. But so the guardian at litem, then does a written report to the court and the guardian at litem is going to basically say, yes, this person needs a guardian or no, they don't. And the other thing is going to be, is the person that is petitioning, are they the appropriate person to do it? So the guardian at light is going to do background checks on whoever it is to make sure that they're a proper person. The other thing that has to go with the petition is a medical evaluation. So there has to be a doctor, psychiatrist, it can be a nurse practitioner, whomever, um, has to fill out the medical evaluation stating this is what's going on medically with this person, and yes, I believe that they're in need of assistance for their personal affairs or their business affairs.
1: So, is it your impression that after sort of that movie and then the Free Britney movement, some of the states, other states, had looked at tightening the rules, but like in a place like Virginia, Virginia may have been a little bit further ahead.
0: Well, well, the master of states is Florida, <laughs>
1: because <laughs> that makes all sense. Snowbirds all right,
0: the birds. I mean, Florida, no, they've got, got it down. So
1: and they've seen everything, probably. They've
0: seen a lot, yeah. Um, so Florida has been doing this for a long time. Virginia, I mean, I think our, our laws are pretty tight. I remember back before we had the Uniform Transfer Code.
1: And that's the connection between the states, the yes, similar. Yeah. Where
0: you, if you transfer the guardianship state to state, which Florida has not joined. I think they're the, one of the last holdouts who won't uh, participate. So if you have somebody under a a guardianship in Florida and they get moved up to Virginia to be closer to family, that family is going through the whole process all over again. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But it, in the other States, well, but before we had this, I had one where I think they were transferring from New Hampshire I think it was New Hampshire, Vermont, somewhere. And the my client told me the process there. And the Guardian at light I met um her mother at the courthouse. She had not seen her before, and it was just the most bizarre oh, wow. thing. Yeah, and just signed off on everything. I'm like, oh.
1: <laughs> Probably not the way to right. do it. Yeah. No. I was, I, I had been reading up on California's rules, and they have sort of like this general conservatorship and this limited one, but the general one, you know, it's pretty expansive. You have all these powers and responsibilities, except for ones that are considered unnecessary, but there seven things that they have. And I may get this wrong, but like one of them is they could fix the residence of the person's dwelling. They had access to all their confidential records and papers. They could like withhold the um, consent to marry, Keep them or, or, or exercise the ability to get into a contract. I think they could give or withhold medical consent. They had power over their social or sexual contacts and relationships, and they could make decisions about their education. And I just think about all those things. If you're going to be in that position, like, how do we make sure that person is trustworthy?
0: Well, that's where, here in Virginia, that's where the guardian ad litem comes in. So, and you have to, and at least in most of the places where I practice, the, like, I'm allowed to pick my guardian ad litem. There are other jurisdictions, like up in your neck of the woods in Northern Virginia, where, like in Fairfax, um, the court appoints, mm. you go down a list, and you get what you get. So, um yeah. And so getting a good guardian that light is 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 key because you know that person is gonna do a good job um, right. but there are bad ones out there, and there's only you know so much you can do about that if you're in one of those jurisdictions where the court's going down the list. Now, you can always ask to remove the guardian that light um if you don't think the guardian at is doing a good job. now, I had one where the guardian that light um. Um, basically said that my client, I was the counsel for the respondent and the guardian at Lightham said, well, she needs a, she needs a guardian and conservator. And I said, well, why? Well, she keeps changing her documents. She kept getting into fights with her daughter and her daughter was bipolar. <laughs> so they would get into these fights and my client would change all of her documents. Well, the only physical ailment that my client had. She was ninety one. She had macular degeneration. That was it. Huh. But she was sharp huh. as a tack. And well,
1: that's kind of interesting because I'm thinking, like in my head, as you say that, like needing help is not enough to like warrant a point an appointment. But no. so, so what is, is it that you need to like protect the person's well being or like what do you have to show to a judge? Because I think about like needing help. You know, you run into people all the time every day who really seriously need help, and often it's episodic. But what do you have to say or prove to a judge to really...
0: There has to be a medical reason um, behind. It can't just be that the person is making bad decisions. I wasn't involved in a case, but there was one, I believe, in Spotsylvania County, where the Department of Social Services filed... Um, through um, Adult Protective Services, because there was a gentleman in the county, he was gambling his money away. And he was, I don't know, it might have been to scammers, it might have been to, I don't know, to the point where his power was getting turned off. And, you know, it was, you know, water was not, the water bill wasn't being paid. But the court said There's nothing physically wrong with him or mentally wrong with him. He's just making bad Bad choices. Bad choices, yes. So that's what the court looks, there has to be a reason behind whatever's going on.
1: So it's got to be more than your loved one is making bad choices. One of the things I was curious about that I don't know about, because obviously some of these conditions you know, like Alzheimer's are not going to get better. But in those cases where there's the possibility of recovery or improvement or something else like that, are these designed to really like encourage like more self-reliance or growth or independence or how does that work?
0: Yeah. So if you have somebody and it happens a lot with TBI, with a traumatic brain injury, if you have somebody who has and may need a guardian temporarily, or you just don't know if the person's going to get better or um, get back to a place where they can take care of themselves, but you can always terminate the guardianship. You can always modify it. It's not set in stone uh, forever. And now as of July 1, in that type of situation, the judge can set um a yearly review for the guardianship Mm. which is a new is new in our statutes
1: so it's sort of a protection there or that's a a protection
0: yes but if you have somebody with alzheimer's unless there's a cure you know which i really hope there would be i'd love to do a bunch of terminations (laughs) (laughs) wouldn't that be amazing it would be that that, talk about feeling good that would be a good day um to be able to do a bunch of terminations because people are no longer need the the guardian or conservator. But so that is new in our law where um, those, those things can come up for review. Now the mandatory review is if a hospital or assisted living or nursing home is the petitioner. So anytime that one of those facilities um, are the petitioner, there's going to be a yearly review. It's a shall.
1: Uh, it's required because required. of who is doing be, it because, yeah. yeah, their finances may be intertwined with the other person's medical care or Correct. other things like that. So they really look at, like, they think about what incentives do people have, and even organizations that may often have altruistic, they, they might have these sort of, like, conflicting competing priorities that you want to have a have a check on i was w- wondering what your thought is like with all of these things in the news because of the spears and or case and other things like that do you think that there are risks that some legislatures may make it so hard that people will be harmed more
0: I do think that's a possibility. I I mean, the things that our legislature went into the general assembly wanted to do was overkill, so to speak. So um, the Virginia, the board I'm on the Virginia Academy of elder law attorneys, we actually hired a lobbyist and we have a committee, a public policy committee that would meet, would go and talk to, the legislatures and or legislators and say, Listen, don't do this. And this is why. <laughs> but they're just, you know, it was like a knee jerk reaction to because, you know, unless you're in this, it's really, you don't understand it. So, for example, Cray Deeds, he's very um, passionate about mental health because of his son.
1: He's one of the Virginia legislators and his son. I think had depression or had bipolar, and then didn't. What didn't something horrendous happen?
0: I think he killed. My believe he killed himself. Killed um,
1: himself. Yeah, but he
0: was not. Um, I guess he was under an ECO. I want to say.
1: Yeah, he was. Um, he had been temporarily detained a couple times, and mm-hmm. had been under court orders for involuntary hospitalization. I I just remember that vividly because I was running a bipolar support group at the time. And that was just, you know, we've struggled in Virginia with um, getting that right balance when it comes to involuntary hospitalization and ensuring that there is ongoing follow-up outpatient treatment. And that that case was sort of like one of the shining sad examples of, of what happens when that second part doesn't really kick in.
0: Yeah. And I would say, you know, I always tell people there, the three types of guardianships I do are um, the populations are either the um, intellectually disabled young adult, uh, the older individual that has dementia or some type of medical condition, and they either don't have a power of attorney or a medical directive, or there's an issue with one of the documents, or there's an issue with someone who was appointed on one of the documents. And then the third group, which is the hardest, is the mentally ill. Because Why do you say
1: that, that's the hardest?
0: It's the hardest because they. it's usually a, a medication issue. It's a... Um, where the family is saying, well, they won't take their medication Mm. or homeless. They're doing, you know, they're making those bad choices, but they're also under that. It is, you know, that mental disability. And, but they don't want to take their medication. And so they're going to fight tooth and nail. So I would say the most successful, guardianships I've done for anyone who's got a mental illness is there's also an intellectual disability with it.
1: Mm. Yeah, because one of the things I remember from from my good old days of doing emergency related work was um, because mental illness is so relapsing and remitting, even though people have, you know, persistent that even the special judges who di- decided issues like involuntary hospitalization had and the psychiatrist had a um had a real hard time because one of the things that I was telling people, like in my own health directive, I said, Hey, you know, if these people think I need to be hospitalized and I list, like if one of these people thinks i need to be hospitalized no matter what i say no matter what i do no matter how much i charm you i should be hospitalized because one of the things i really learned both by myself and other people is that you can snap out of it for a while to like pull yourself together and look like a sane person like if you if you give me 20 minutes i will convince you in the middle of a manic episode that I am the sanest, most logical person you've ever met in your life. And that I do not need to be hospitalized. If you wait 21 minutes, you'll be like,
0: All bets are do off, not, right? Yeah,
1: do not pass. Go send this guy to the hospital.
0: <laughs> yes. And we call that what you have. We call that the Ulysses clause. Where ever <laughs> your objection, when you are in a, a space where you can make that decision, You can state, if this happens, then please put me in the hospital. And so that's what that is.
1: Yeah, because I even know the medications that really work for me in an emergency, and I hate them. So I know I will oppose them in the moment. So I have those laid out there where I'm like, no matter what I say, please give me these medications. I
0: mean, the insight you have is remarkable, I I will say, because... That is not the norm, you know. That's right. <laughs> I,
1: th- I think I I have the blessing of having fallen so hard, and knowing that I cannot like if there's any lesson for me to my first few episodes is that I cannot lean on my own understanding, and that the, it humbled me so much to know. That in those moments, I didn't, I couldn't make the best decisions for myself. It's the opposite of what I was like before I had my first manic episode because I was pretty arrogant and thought I could make any decision for myself. And I I love that phrase, Ulysses Claus, because wasn't that his story? That it's that that whole underlying idea of like being able to bind yourself freely. Is mm-hmm. not always the best idea,
0: right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's and we actually, I guess, I believe it was in 2010 where we had a, a revamping of our advanced medical directives in Virginia where that became an option. And I will say, I've only ever done one, so really,
1: that's so- actually surprising to me because for those of us, I think, sometimes who go through this, and and I know a lot of people don't do advanced health directives and things like that, like, you get the message that your judgment is not always the best. Right. Usually some breadcrumbs or evidence around afterwards.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. And, but, you, you know, you have to have that insightfulness like you do to be able to say, okay, this may very well happen again. And if it does, this is, you know, I'm using my voice now to say. And it's the same thing. Um the people who do powers of attorney are just regular medical directives. You're using your voice when you can to say this is what I want or this these are the people I trust to make decisions for me.
1: Yeah. I am, you know, as I think about it, I was just thinking about what I was saying and like that idea of, um, um, have you, you ever heard of that? It's a heuristic. It's called the escalation of commitment heuristic. And it basically, it basically says like the more you invest into a bad idea, the harder it is to see that it's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, but really like when you drill down and you look at the real definition, it's like when a person is increasingly facing negative outcomes because of like their actions or decision because they've invested in it so much they will continue moving without altering course because the stakes get higher every time they put energy in it and i think sometimes when people are fighting these things they just become increasingly irrational because they've invested in fighting it so much Oh, sunk cost fallacy. That's another thing that they call it. And I think that can kind of get in the way sometimes in fighting that the more, so I imagine, I imagine the best way to do these things is a more cooperative way if you can.
0: Yes. um, Well, most definitely. But you know, you have to be to the point where you have that insight to be able to do it. And that's why I say the guardianships for persons who are mentally ill are the hardest. And there are, you know, the ones that are really wild are people who have a mental illness, may not have been treated because the spouse was taking care of things, so to speak. The spouse is gone and now we have some dementia on top of it. So those get really hairy because I used to get into an argument with a friend of mine, and he was a director of a um, psychiatric hospital. And he said, we don't treat old people with dementia. (laughs) I said, well, um, (laughs) I I said, but there's a mental illness, too. Well, they need to just go somewhere. They need to go to a nursing home. Like, well, okay. The nursing home doesn't want them because they're being, you know, they may be in psychosis or, you know, it's not, we're trying to figure out what is the psychosis.
1: Here's the hot potato. Let me pass it over here. No, pass it over here.
0: They can't figure out if it's the dementia causing it or if it's the mental illness. I mean, it's, you know, bonkers. It's just like. Well, that's
1: one of our weaknesses on the healthcare side from my perspective is like we've become so specialized we've created a situation where it's like, not me, not me, not me, not me. Yeah.
0: And it is. And I feel so bad because, you know, I had a guardianship a couple of years ago where, yeah, we're pretty sure mom is bipolar, but dad took care of it. Like, mm. you know, dad's mm. gone. It's how <laughs> and, I feel
1: about my parents. Yeah. <laughs>
0: and so dad's gone. He took care and, of it. Yeah. <laughs> And now there's, oh, well, I think mom's got dementia now too. And, you know, trying, I mean, it just, it was, it was an interesting guardianship to say the least because the guardianship started when she was in the psychiatric hospital and then she moved into an assisted living and she escaped from there. And it was just a whole big, oh, um, wow. yeah, it was. So that happens and people just don't don't i mean medical uh professionals don't know what to do and they'll say well that it's the you know the psychosis or maybe it's the dementia we just don't know you know because it's the brain and we don't know much about the brains to this day we just don't
1: i am one of the things that i uh i tell myself i'm like I remind myself often, if you find yourself digging a hole, stop digging. (laughs) Stop digging at the very least. This is Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. We'll see you all again next week.